0: Oops, got a few too many books on here. We just need to sort ourselves out. Just take that's all right. That'll be fine. It's better I can see you if I move that. uh, Well, we come this morning to the. Thanks. Yeah, that's right. That's even better. We come this morning to the uh, fourth look at this letter of Paul to the Christians at Philippi. Remember, he founded the church at Philippi, and he's written this letter, and uh, we have it now in four chapters. Of course, he didn't write it in four chapters, but uh, what we're trying to do is to have something of an overview. So I'm not going to try and talk about everything in this chapter this morning, and if you think I've left something out that you want to talk about, Or if you think I haven't dealt with it very well, you're very welcome to come and talk afterwards. But uh, although we're going to pick out one or two things, there is, uh, I think, there is a thread uh, in the things that I'm going to pick out this morning. And that thread, and you can see if you can agree at the end, that thread is attitude. Attitude. Perhaps I should say also that this chapter is, will not teach us how to be a Christian. It will teach us how we should live as a Christian. But by attempting these things, we won't become a Christian. He deals with that in another place. But uh, there is a pattern for us to adopt this morning. First of all, he talks, uh, first topic I want to bring up, is the one about Christian relationships. Two women in the church in Philippi are at loggerheads. And this is not some temporary passing thing. It's something which is very serious, and serious enough to be mentioned in a letter which is to be read publicly. And he actually names the two ladies. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Suntaki." to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. He calls them Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, We might call them Euodius and Suntachi, two women at loggerheads. We don't know why, whether this was some matter of principle that they saw or whether it was something uh, more a matter of choice. I don't know. Was it something to do with their personalities? But it was very serious and it would have been affecting the life of the whole church. Worse, they were former members of Paul's team. When Paul traveled around from place to place, he had a small team that traveled with him. But it would seem that uh, when he settled in a place for some months or even a couple of years, he gathered a few others around him as part of his team and together they, they worked for the Lord in that place. And these two women had been part of his team and had rendered very valuable service. He said they'd labored side by side with me in the gospel, and we can imagine the distress that Paul feels about this. It happens, doesn't it? It happens in teams. It happens in churches. People come to be at loggerheads with one another. We're not perfect. Although we are Christians and we have the new life of God in us. We are not perfect and uh, these things can rise. Difficulties, differences. The New Testament is very realistic. Sometimes offense is given by bad behavior. Sometimes it's given by mistake, in error might be a difference of personalities. But it's there and it causes ripples in the church, if not more. What are we to do? Paul says, I beseech you, you odious, (laughs) soon touchy, I beseech you, agree in the Lord. He'd written earlier on in the letter something like this, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider the other better than yourselves. You might have to agree to differ even, but be one in purpose. Get your attitude right. Be careful about ambition, selfish ambition. Be careful about pride. If you find yourself in a situation like this, look into your motivation. Not the other person's motivation. You can't see that. Look into your own. Very important. Agree with each other in the Lord. What might that mean? Well, they, they both owe their forgiveness and their new life to the Lord the very fact that they're a Christian. He is Lord of them both. And they both owe loyalty and obedience to this Lord, the one Lord. They're in the same family. The fact that they belong to the Lord means that they are both children of God and they are sisters, brothers, brother and sister in the Lord. They belong to the same family. How can you go on like this at loggerheads all the time? For the Lord's sake, for the sake of his kingdom, agree, get on with one another. I beseech you, agree in the Lord. These considerations outweigh everything else. Our relationship with the Lord and what we owe to him outweighs every other consideration. And we should be at peace with one another. And uh, you notice Paul wants this dealt with. He doesn't just talk to the two ladies. He also writes to someone he calls true yoke fellow, possibly even Sisigos. We're not quite sure whether it's meant to be a name or not. But he calls him true yoke fellow. help these two women in the Lord. You... Do you have two friends that are at loggerheads? Do your best to help them. Draw their attention to where they belong, where their loyalties really are. Agree in the Lord. Discord and disunity in a local church dishonors the Lord and hinders God's blessing. That was one serious matter. And then we come uh, to something else that's already been mentioned today. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And he's already said it twice in this letter, and if you were awake last week, uh, Roger spoke briefly about it. But it's something which is, is very important, and I think we need to return to it again this morning. It was important for Paul. And you notice in this letter that joy and rejoice and glad occur over and over again. Paul talks himself about rejoicing in the Lord. And uh, he uh, says he rejoices in the Philippians as well. And uh, he wants them to be rejoicing people. Now, he's saying something more than when you feel happy, rejoice in the Lord. He's not saying, well, um, the gospel is something to be happy about. It's very easy for us to pass over this, you see. But what he's saying is, rejoice in the Lord always. Now this rejoicing is not something that we are it's something that we do. We are happy. Sometimes we're unhappy. Sometimes we're even worried. But he says rejoice in the Lord always. It's something that we choose to do and we are never told in the New Testament be happy all the time. I remember there was a a song when I was a youngster, a Christian song that talked about being happy all the time. Well, it wasn't true to experience, and we're never told to be happy. For instance, um, a man might say, well, I, I lost my little boy this week. I'm very happy. I lost my job, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and I don't know how I'm going to pay the mortgage. I'm very happy. It's a contradiction in terms. But in those circumstances, Paul is telling us, rejoice in the Lord. Do it always. In other words, rejoicing that he's talking about is something different from happiness in itself. In part, it has to do with counting our blessings. It's always a good approach to life. Counting troubles depresses us, it weakens us. Maybe temperament encourages some of us to count our troubles and encourages others of us to count our blessings. But uh, Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. It isn't a silly optimism. It's not pretending we don't have any troubles. But it is looking for the positive. And even non-Christians recognize the importance of this. It's one of the secrets of dealing with the hardships and difficulties in life that you count your positives. Count your blessings. Count what you have, not what you don't have. Count what you can do, not what you can't do. And if you're a Christian, you have an even more reason for doing that. He says, rejoice In the Lord. If everything else fails and you can't think of anything else that's positive, rejoice in the Lord. What does he mean? Well, first of all, rejoice for what the Lord has done for you. He's given his son for you. He's led you to faith in the Lord Jesus. He has forgiven you. He's changed your life. He's made you God's child. You belong to him. You are the object of his care. Whatever the trouble might be, you can rejoice in that, what he has done for you. And you can rejoice in what he is doing for you. Now, for instance, Paul talks about being satisfied in his circumstances. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we can rejoice in the fact, not that God is going to take everything away from us that's difficult, but he will strengthen us and enable us to go on if we know his new life in us. He will do that. We also read that there is no testing too strong for us. It is never more than he can bear that he allows to come to us. Even more than that, when we are trusting him, he turns everything to our good, even the hard bits, the difficult bits, the bits we cannot understand. He works everything for our ultimate good. That's what he's doing in the present. So, so we, we hit a hard patch. So we don't know what God is doing. We feel like we want to despair. What would Paul tell us to do? He would say rejoice in the Lord, what he has done for you and what he is doing now and what he will do in the future. He spoke in the previous chapter about our citizenship being in heaven. The time will come when our citizenship will be made clear. He spoke about in the last chapter too that we shall be changed and our bodies that we have now will be changed and will be made like his body. We're told in the New Testament that we have a glorious inheritance that can never spoil or fade and will never be taken away from us. We know that there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sickness, no more worry, no more suffering, no more sin, no more persecution, no more disappointment, no more failure. All of these things we are promised and whatever we are going through now, we know it's not going to last forever. God has a purpose for us and God has an inheritance for us. And so whatever else is happening, we can rejoice in the Lord and his care and his promise. So Paul is saying to us, choose to do it. He's not expecting us to find ourselves doing it by accident when we're in trouble. But he says, choose to do it. And I'll say it again. Choose to do it. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul did it. Remember in the first chapter, we were talking about the fact that he was chained in a Roman prisoner to a soldier. He had no privacy 24 hours in the day. Everything he did, everything he said, every person that came, was always, he was always tied to a shoulder, soldier. Do you think that was a happy time? <laughs> It was really very difficult. And he'd been in prison for several years already and he didn't know what was going to happen. And what does he say? I rejoice that I'm in prison. But because, because I'm in prison, the gospel is being preached more and more widely and indeed the whole preterian guard knows about it. I'm going to rejoice about that, he says. Counting his blessings. Rejoicing in the Lord. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Can you remember what Paul and Silas did when they were first in Philippi and they founded the church? They were falsely condemned and they were beaten up and they were put in the stocks in prison and at midnight they sang praises to the Lord They rejoiced in the Lord. So Paul isn't telling us to do something that he hasn't done himself. But he's telling us how we should live as Christians. Doesn't say it's always easy. But he says, I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Look for the positive. Count your blessings. Remember, all he has done is doing and will do for you. It will help in the hard times. It does help. And it will honor the Lord. Then you notice, and again another verse, rejoicing and nagging anxiety don't go together. So he immediately begins to tell them don't be anxious about anything. doesn't mean to say don't be concerned about, don't have thought about, but this, it's this nagging anxiety, the kind that keeps you awake at night, this thing that comes round and round in your mind. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, let your requests to God and the peace of God bring them, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, in this prayer, he's not talking about the repetition of some prayer, even the Lord's prayer over and over again until you somehow feel better. He's talking about believing, trusting prayer in the Lord. And he's talking about taking the details to him by prayer and petition. And again, you notice there's thanksgiving in there, very close to rejoicing. He brings. He says this, now you present your requests in this believing way and the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I can't see what the future is going to be but I will trust him and I believe he has the future in his hand. I haven't time to tell you one of the stories that I had but I will tell you about uh, an older couple when I was a young Christian and he said to me, there was a time when my wife and I were very worried and we went to the pastor and we asked him to pray with us and we knelt down in his vestry and we prayed and as we got up the pastor said, well now, how do you feel now? Oh, he said, I'm still worried. I don't No, You get down and pray again, he said. So they knelt down and prayed again and they got up again and how do you feel? And they said, well, well, we're still worried. Well, come on, we pray again. Until they had really believingly committed to the Lord. Not just believing it's going to work out all right, but believing in the Lord Himself, in His goodness, and His love, and His care, and His purposes. Such that at the end they couldn't say, well, we know everything's going to be hunky-dory. But we know whatever the trouble, God has it in hand. Whatever the trouble, he's going to turn it to our good. Whatever the trouble, it's not more than we can bear. All of these things. And the peace of God will keep your heart and mind. You can't necessarily explain it. But that peace is there. Following, believing prayer. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say, it: rejoice. Well now we just look at the second half of the chapter and uh, We see something that happened between Paul and the Philippians. You remember he'd been badly beaten, put in prison, escorted out of prison the next day by the magistrates, but required to leave the city, and he went on to the next city, uh, which was Thessalonica. But the Philippians were so concerned about him while he was in Thessalonica that they sent him several gifts to help him in his need. And then uh, that uh, stopped, and of course he was traveling around in many other places. But now he says, I've received another gift from you, and I do thank you very much. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. But it was good of you to share my troubles. He, He appreciates so much what they had done. But then he goes on to say something very remarkable. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, very briefly, he's not saying, I enjoy being in every circumstance. He's not saying that he enjoyed being beaten up and put in prison. He's not saying, I'm enjoying being in prison in Rome at this present time. There are things I rejoice about, But uh, it's not what I enjoy, but I am content to be here because it's where the Lord wants me to be. Paul actually wanted to change things. He brought a gospel of transformation, and he looked for transformation in the people that believed that life transforming message. But he had learned to be content when he was in the place that God wanted him to be. Oh, you say, this has uh, shades of God bless the squire and his relations and keep us all in our proper stations, doesn't it? No, it doesn't mean that. Paul actually on one occasion told slaves, if you become a Christian as a slave, don't fret. Just go on working and do your best. But, If you can get your liberty, well then take it. And so this isn't to keep us in our proper station. If there's an opportunity to improve our circumstances, to change them and so on, then we should take it. But we should do it in God's way. Remember the Lord Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, these material things that he'd been talking about, will be added to you. And uh, likewise, Paul, in another place, he talks about this constant desire for things, Uh, called it covetousness, the desire to acquire, acquisition of more and more and more. And he contrasts that with Christian contentment. Christian life is not to be one of constant acquisition and desire for more and more. And he even said this, godliness with contentment is great gain. But then uh, we'll just finish now as we talk about uh, what they had done for Paul. Just look at this question of giving. He said, verse 18, The gifts you sent are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, as we know, there was a whole system and network of sacrifices. Sacrifices for sin, sacrifices enabling the people to approach God and worship God. And without these mandatory sacrifices, they should not expect prayer to be heard. They should not expect that they were worshipping God. They were mandatory. But in addition to that, there were voluntary sacrifices. There were sacrifices that could be a, a thank offering a person could bring for a special blessing that he had received. It was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. There were sacrifices of a desire to worship, not mandated. They were brought out of a love for God. There were sacrifices called a a fellowship offering or a peace offering. would have been the kind of offering that... um, uh, the uh, mother and father of uh, Samuel brought when they came up to the temple a peace offering, and uh, these are described in Leviticus as a aroma pleasing to God, a sacrifice, an aroma pleasing to God. Now the New Testament knows nothing at all of altars and animal sacrifices. In fact, a, a person coming only to the New Testament, might puzzle when he finds today some churches that have altars in them. Those old mandatory sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus when he died upon the cross. And there's nothing in the New Testament about any reenactment of the death of Jesus at a time of communion. That sacrifice that Jesus offered was once for all. But we are told to offer spiritual sacrifices, which are the equivalent, as we look at them, they are the equivalent of the voluntary sacrifices of the Old Testament. Hence, you can see Paul, the way he's talking in this letter. For instance, we're told to offer ourselves As living sacrifices. Nothing to do with a a literal altar or a literal animal. But we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he wrote about the Philippians and the Thessalonians. And he said they were exceedingly generous. First of all, they gave their own selves to the Lord. Living sacrifices. Then the New Testament talks about a sacrifice of praise which is much the same as our rejoicing in the Lord. We offer a sacrifice of praise. There's a sacrifice of doing good and sharing. And there is a sacrifice of giving, as Paul mentions here. They are gifts, they are offerings, they are spiritual sacrifices that we offer to the Lord. And so that's why he says, your giving, I realize, is giving to the Lord. It comes to me, and it is like a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. What a wonderful way to think about our giving to the Lord. When we're in church, we don't just take up a collection. (laughs) We bring our gifts to the Lord. It's part of the spiritual sacrifices that we offer as part of our worship. Sometimes we bring a special offering to the Lord, a thank offering for some special blessing that we have received. We're going to have a special giving Sunday next week. We're not just putting money in the collection to help this building We're bringing our gifts to the Lord. They are our offering to him. And Paul describes them as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice pleasing to him. I haven't got time to talk about it, but you notice that 19th verse. Having talked about their giving, and he says, and my God will supply every need of yours. Uh, uh. you know in the old days when a missionary was going out sometimes someone would come up with you and say I have a text for you and on the piece of paper would be Philippians 4.19 my God will supply every need of yours Uh. shows they weren't reading their New Testament very clearly that verse is for the giver You give to the Lord? You bring your offerings to the Lord? Paul is saying, and my God will supply every need of yours, you the giver, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Well, time's gone. Can you see the thread? Well, we've been talking about attitude in our giving. We've been talking about an attitude to our circumstances. We've talked about a right attitude to one another and agreeing in the Lord. And we've talked about our attitude to life in general, our practice. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul was a great man. The more we read about him, the more we realize what a remarkable Christian he was may God give us grace to do the things that he's been talking about